the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Where are you, Richard? I'm uh, sitting outside a cafe called Daniele's in Bassano del Grappa in uh, Veneto in Italy. A place that Daniel knows very well, don't you, Daniel? I do pretty well. You clearly are fitting in your... um Getting nicely settled there. Your pronunciation has improved in the last three or four days. I noticed that you put, you put the right the emphasis on the right sil- syllable in Veneto there. Working on it, Daniel. Working on it. I have been here for six days, so if I don't know it now, I'll never know it. We we spent a night here at the the Giro a couple of years ago, didn't we? Um, I think at the end of the 2018 we did, Giro, Rich, um, yeah. or 19, perhaps. Yeah, 19 yeah. it was. Um, I'm tempted to ask you to pop into the little shop on the, the famous bridge there, the famous wooden bridge, the Ponte degli Alpini, and there's a shop there, well, there's the distillery, I think, the distillery, or maybe just a shop that sells Nardini Grappa, but they also do a Grappa toothpaste I bought last that's time. That's right. But unfortunately, it was, it was, it was terrible. <laughs> it, was absolutely, it was absolutely wrong. So why so, do you want yeah, more? No, I mean, it was, it was a nice sort of party trick to produce that. Um, <laughs> well, I've, I've had, a couple of, no. had a couple of grappas while I've been here, um, and I just had a... A, a, a cappuccino at 10 10:48 a.m. just before the cutoff, uh, but I've been here for six days, um, enjoying a, a new week of cycling that's been put together by Filippo Pozzato. Um, Ride the Dreamland, it's called. It's the, the branding for three races, including a professional gravel race and a Gran Fondo, and it's been a lot of fun. I go home tonight. Weather absolutely perfect. I mean, it's very late in the year, obviously, for racing. But the weather's been perfect. It's been pretty lucky with that. Um, glorious sunshine, 17, 18 degrees every day. And a, a pretty successful first effort, I think. Uh, we'll hear from Filippo Pozzato and others associated with the, the races and this week a little bit later on. But before all that, do you have a news roundup for us, Lionel? I do. Lots going on. So chip in wherever you want to, chaps. But let's start with those Italian races, shall we? Uh, the end of season events... Uh, across the north of Italy, starting with the Coppa Agastoni, won by Alexei Lutsenko of the Astana team. And, uh, well, that foreshadowed a couple of uh, other fine results for Astana, really, because Samuele Battistella won the Veneto Classic. You were talking about, Richard. And then Lutsenko won the Serenissima gravel race, so the so-called first professional gravel race. But, I mean, this is an area of debate here, isn't it? Because what, what would Strada Bianca be? That's not gravel, I guess. That's just white, dusty roads. So we're, we're, we're dividing up a niche into sub-niches. Uh, there was also the Giro del Veneto, which was won, won by Zandro Maurice. And, uh, yeah, it's the kind of... End of season Italian races, which when I was watching cycling in the sort of 80s and 90s, these were the these were the races that sort of led up to the world championships, weren't they? And then they all really struggled for a few years. And there does seem to be quite a revival of these races. But we'll um, talk about that in this episode. There's also the British National Championships for the first time since 2019, postponed, of course, last year or cancelled rather because of the coronavirus pandemic. And Ben Swift defended the title he won in 2019. He outmuscled Fred Wright on the final climb, the famous climb. Anyone who knows the Lincoln Grand Prix of Michael Gate, Cobbled Hill, that wouldn't look out of place in Belgium. 
really. Uh, ben Swift winning the title. And that's three Swift wins in a row because his cousin Connor won in 2018. Ethan Hayter, who was third, had earlier in the week won the time trial. And his younger brother, Leo, won the under-23 time trial. The women's road race was won by Pfeiffer Georgie. And the women's time trial was won by Anna Henderson. One little story from the men's time trial, Alex Dowsett, who is preparing for his World Hour record attempt in a few weeks' time, was a uh, well, he abandoned the time trial. Uh, he's a six-time champion, of course, but he described his pre-race preparation as aggressive nitrate loading, um, drinking lots of beetroot shots, and it caused him some discomfort, and apparently he was throwing up on the bike, and this was a test ahead of the hour record attempt in Mexico, so I guess he'll be steering clear of the beetroot before he attempts his hour record. He's trying to win back the record. He held it in... 2015 for just over a month before Bradley Wiggins broke it and then the current holder Victor Campanarts set the record of 55.089 kilometres and Dowsett is going to Mexico to ride altitude to try and get his record back but there are already reports that Filippo Ganna is preparing for an attempt on the hour record as well and has ridden a half hour test at 57.5 kilometres an hour so the hour record is hotting up again Sticking with a bit of time trialling, the final time trial event of the season, the Chrono des Herbiers in the Vendée region of Western France, was won by Stefan Kung of Group Armour FDJ. And the women's race was won by Marlon Rousa in her final race before she joins SD Works. The Cyclocross World Cup, which got underway a couple of weeks ago, the US swing is now over and the third round was a repeat of the first round in a way. The races in Iowa were won by Ellie Isabit and Mariana Voss and now the Cyclocross goes back to Belgium with a round in Zonhoven this weekend. And... It's Groundhog Day for the Quebecer Next Hash team. Doug Ryder is again searching for a sponsor, isn't he? An email came out this week confirming that the team has been unable to put together its application for a 2022 World Tour licence. There have been reports that the team's been struggling to pay its riders since August. Since the summer, there have been some questions about the stability of Next Hash, the co-sponsor, which is a cryptocurrency company. I must admit, cryptocurrency is uh, a bit of a mystery to me, but the team is basically appealing for backers to um, help them carry on. And they were in very much this position last year. So uh, they were successful in managing to keep the team on the road last year. Um, but being in the same boat again this year, uh, well, it's going to be just as difficult to pull off. I don't know whether you guys have got any uh, info on how things are looking for Quebecer. Well, I just I saw the, a, a clarification on Next Hash um, that they were never going to become. Although they signed up apparently for four and a half years, they weren't going to become the title sponsor beyond this year. So they replaced Asos for the rest of this year. But the team were always, as Victor Campanart said at the Giro, always looking for a new title sponsor for next year and beyond. So in that sense, things haven't changed. I guess the the reports of non-payments to riders is alarming and it is late in the year isn't it although it was about the same time last year that because of course the the Giro was still going on at this time last year wasn't it and uh, it, it, the team was saved even later than this and so I guess there's still hope but it does look um, it could be a forlorn hope and uh, there could be one fewer team in the world tour next year they've missed the um, application date haven't they for a world tour license for next year so yeah big questions 
I mean, I mean, I think some hopes were raised by the news about a week ago that Premier Tech, who are currently a co-sponsor of Astana, had pulled out of talks with Bike Exchange, uh, Jerry Ryan and his organisation. And they, well, it's well known that they're sort of in the market for another team of co-sponsorship. And it seemed, well, Quebec seemed like an obvious option. They'd already been linked, those two, um, Quebec and Premier Tech. But... Last week, we also had the news that Jakob Fuglsang had signed a th- an extraordinary three-year contract. I think he's 36, isn't he, Fuglsang? Three-year contract with Israel Startup Nation. Ugo Uhl, um, the Canadian rider, has also gone to Israel Startup Nation. And one deduction that you could make from that is that Premier Tech are destined to become co-sponsors of Israel Startup Nation. I believe that may well happen, although Premier Tech also want quite a lot of input control in in terms of how the team, whichever team they join is run. And I think they also want equity. Um, They want to be part owners of the team that they go to. And lastly, everyone will remember the fan who held up this sign that said Ale Opi Omi, uh, a sign for her grandparents uh, during the opening stage of the Tour de France when she was facing away from the oncoming peloton and caused a crash. Tony Martin was first down and around 50 other riders went down. Several riders had to quit the race and Marc Soler broke both his arms in that crash. Uh, It was a really serious incident created a lot of anger at the time um the person who held up the sign has been in court in brest in Brittany last week facing criminal charges for causing that crash and uh if found uh, if the case is upheld she faces a four-month suspended prison sentence uh, the verdict is expected in december and meanwhile the cpa the association of professional cyclists have also filed a civil suit for a symbolic compensation claim of one euro and uh, richard i know you um you have some thoughts on this well <laughs> thanks lionel um no I, I mean i know some of our listeners feel that it's a proportionate punishment that that you know the possibility of a, a prison sentence even suspended prison sentence is is um a fitting punishment for her crime but i don't i mean i i don't think it's appropriate and i also think it sets a a, a bad precedent i mean where where do we draw the line if if uh, if if people are going to be blamed for causing crashes she clearly was to blame but there's a difference between that incident i think and the incident at the women's tour recently where somebody threw a parking cone into the path of the riders to try and cause a crash. You know, in her case, it was an accident. And as it was pointed out to me, intent is not everything. No, it's not. But um, I feel that she is being very, very harshly treated and made an example of when the responsibility for safety lies also with the organisers. And the Tour de France, other big races happen on the open road. Um, I'm not sure that enough is done to educate people at the side of the road especially when there are as many as there were at the Tour de France last year about how to behave when the riders come through because I think it catches a lot of people by surprise the speed at which they come and the fact that they can pack the road on on both sides and I don't think anything is done really to to educate people about how they should behave. Well when you when you think about the the size of the publicity caravan and the racket it makes for well, how long does it take to go through? 40 minutes or so. And, you know, people are bombarded with packets of Haribo sweets and what else, Lionel? They get key rings, caps, washing powder in sachets. Uh, there, is, there is ample opportunity there. And I, I, I think, um, you guys correct me if I'm mistaken, but possibly after the incident this year, there was 
more of an effort made. Um, there were messages um, over some kind of loudspeaker on the publicity caravan or before the publicity caravan to warn people that they needed to stay back. But that's all that needs to happen, really, um, to put that message across very, very forcefully and, and, and literally spell out the exact things that people must not, must not do. There are um, adverts on French TV in between the Tour de France coverage warning spectators about their conduct, but it tends to focus on people who run alongside the riders in the mountains rather than uh, just generally standing back and, and keeping off the road. Um, I'm, I'm kind of with you, Richard. I think, you know, it was a terrible accident. She certainly didn't intend to cause a crash. And there is, there is a line between um, accidental behaviour that deserves uh, some kind of sanction, some kind of punishment, and uh, accidental uh, behaviour, which, you know, was, was clearly... She was never intending to, to cause an accident. It, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't something that, uh, that she could have, you know, intended to do at all. Um, the criminal charges does seem like a, an overflex to me, but then you say making an example, but perhaps this is something that needs to, yeah, needs to happen in order to just warn people that there will be serious consequences if you step into I, the... I, yeah, I wouldn't object. I wouldn't object to her being made an example of if, if you know, it had been an example of, of, you know, as you mentioned, running alongside the riders. There, there are lots of cases and incidents, and, and they've been increasing a lot over the last decade, of people entering the field of play, which is what it is, and getting in the rider's way. And, and any one of those could have caused a, a bad crash. Generally, they're going uphill. And when they're going uphill, the consequences aren't necessarily as, as, as severe. But, you know, when you watch old footage of the Tour de France, the crowds are incredibly well behaved by comparison. And the, the desire that a lot of people have to get on the TV themselves or to, or to film uh, what's going on and have it in their phone as opposed to watching it themselves with their own eyes. Um, that is cr that's made the, the sport more dangerous, definitely. Yeah, the, the, the sort of inherent irony of this, if you can call it that, is that, as you say, Rich, this behaviour is created by or sort of promoted, fostered by a, a culture, the, the sort of selfie culture, people um, wanting to video themselves. I know this was on network TV. She was actually sort of turning to the the, the main network TV camera, not to a phone, but still, it's a, it's kind of the fruit of that sort of behaviour. But I also don't think that she would have been, she probably wouldn't have been, well, there wouldn't have been such a vociferous reaction and such pressure on whether it was the police or someone to do something, and she probably wouldn't have been tracked down if it hadn't been for social media. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Very grateful indeed to them and uh, to hear a bit more about Super Sapiens, let's hear from the head of sports nutrition at Jumbo Visma, Asger Jukendrup. First of all, it starts with fueling before. Uh, this is where I think a lot of riders make, make mistakes, but by doing the measurements and just by 
practicing your breakfast before uh, training on many occasions, doing these measurements, you can sort of dial in your glucose responses and you, that can help you to get to your, like your perfect breakfast before a sportive. So that, that'd be one, one thing that is relatively easy to figure out with uh, once you have a sensor. The, uh, the second thing you can do, of course, is just do your measurements during the, uh, the training and make sure that your glucose doesn't drop. If it doesn't drop, then you probably do your fueling fairly well. So I think there are two really simple things that anyone, anyone can do and anyone can do immediately once they, uh, once they have the, uh, the sensors. Well, thanks once again to Super Sapiens for sponsoring the Cycling Podcast. Now, I am in Veneto. I'm in Bassano del Grappa at the moment in a beautiful square here having a sipping cappuccino. Um, but I've been at the, the races organised by Filippo Pozzato this last week. I also rode the Gran Fondo on Saturday. I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, but there were familiar faces at the Veneto Classic yesterday. Our old friend Ciro Scognamilio from Gazzetta della Sport and the organiser himself, Filippo Pozzato. Let's hear from both of them. Ciro first and then Pozzato. No people, no party, no Chiro, no Giro, no Chiro, no Veneto Classic. It's a new race, Chiro. Your old friend, people Pozzato, is the organizer. What have you made of his uh, first uh, efforts? As a, I mean, he organized national championships last year, but this week has his fingerprints all over. What have you made of it? Well, dear Richard and dear listeners, you can really understand my link with Filippo Pozzato, my friendship for him, because instead of doing other things, I'm here. So you can easily understand how big is my friendship for him. But I must confess that I have the impression I came here for the Giro del Veneto, then today from Veneto Classic on Sunday. I mean, I think it's an interesting uh, interesting new format for races uh, to close the season I think uh, we can talk uh, about a success he wants he wants them to he wants this week to be a bit earlier in the season doesn't he but does that actually work as a sort of add-on after Lombardy you know there's nothing else on there are obviously riders who still want to race people still want to watch racing has it worked I mean I think that uh, certainly uh, the best calendar for these races can be, could be, or before the words, or for example in the classics period after San Remo and uh, before the spring classics, I mean more or less, I think uh, could be better because at the end of the season certainly there are a lot of people a lot of riders that want to ride but in my opinion i completely crazy this kind of rider at so, this point of the season well, we don't need the races we need holidays some of them are at pre-season training camps or bonding camps at the seaside Chiro. On people himself, are you surprised that he's become a race organizer? Is this what you imagined he would do in retirement or has it has it surprised you? Filippo uh, is, I know him very well, is uh, a kind of man, as you say in English, only sky is his limit. So certainly he could, he can do whatever he wants, more or less. And no, I'm really not, uh, not surprised. And certainly in the future for him, 
uh, he could grow up also as uh, organized organizer not only with uh, only these races but also with other Italian uh, races obviously I'm not speaking about the Giro or Sanremo Lombardy but other races in the calendar why not and finally, Chero, what are your plans for the winter? What happens to Chero in the winter? Uh, Richard, in my head, uh, there isn't the winter so far because I have another important appointment, the track words in Roubaix. So you can imagine, this is my destiny. After being the shark shadow, now in the upcoming week, I will be the Filippo Ganna shadow. So it's a little bit more comfortable because it's really big, but it's not the best destiny for me. People being very complimentary about the the course. You must be very happy with how it how it went. It was a very exciting race. Yeah, now I'm now I'm happy, but before a very very big stress. Too much more there when I stay cycling. But now it's finished. The focus is complete, and I, I'm very very happy because the the, the guys, the people, as as fun it for today. As cycling is. Uh, is the sport in this uh, in this reason and uh, the, my, my heart is very very happy and that this race today was the one the thing that meant the most to you wasn't it it was the one that you really wanted to, to, to be well received and the riders were saying it had a mix of everything you know the the cobbled climb descending the climb is a tough course and and we saw really a really thrilling race in the end yeah, it's, it's very hard, but I think it's hard because it's in October. It's the final of the season. This is the very difficult uh, for the for the guys uh, because it's uh, very uh, very hungry for uh, for long season. Uh, I think it's very spectacular the the, the road. Um, it's possible change for the next year because uh, the the last free free lap on the small climb on um, Contrasso Arda, I think it's better only one time for the final lap. I know that having done it yesterday, it's better no yeah. time. <laughs> um, if if the UCI were to say to you, you could have this week of racing any time in the year, when would you want to have it? Uh, now I have uh, only only three races because uh, it's starting now. But the, in the future I want uh, I want to take more races, uh, not only this race, but the the objective is the, is this for the the future. In the spring or in September, would that be better? Do you think? Yeah, uh, my dream is a change in the September and the the first week of September. But it's very difficult for the calendar is very very full every day. Uh, I'm working with the UCI for the change the date for the next uh, and the, the future. So you can have a rest now? Yeah. Holiday? Yeah, yeah. I take uh, two or three days for a very, very big rest. <laughs> Well, chaps, that was uh, Ciro Scognamilio and then the organiser of these new events, this new week of, of racing and riding, Filippo Pozzato. Very ambitious for his events, but the one, as we mentioned there in the interview, the one that was closest to his heart was the Veneto Classic on Sunday, uh, a course that had sort of Pozzato's fingerprints all over it. It had a cobbled climb, uh, some some tough roads. Um, we'll hear from Guillaume Martin in a, a bit as well. He was very active in the race for Cofidis. Um And these are Pozzato's old training roads, of course, because he's from Sandrigo, which is uh, near near to this this town where I am, Bassano del Grappa. Um, so 
that was the race that really he had uh, looked forward to all week. I think the others were maybe to a greater or lesser extent imposed upon him. Um, um, there was a gravel race as well. We'll come to that. Um, but I thought Sunday's race, the, the Veneto Classic, was it was a great race, a, a very um, mixed field. Three World Tour teams, but a real range of, of talents and abilities, I think. Uh, but we saw a really interesting race on a course that certainly has a lot of potential to become the classic that he wants it to be. Yeah, I suppose the first thing to say, Ridge, is the the Veneto is, well, it's a sort of sleeping giant of Italian cycling in terms of, well, that the, these three regions, which is sort of the holy trinity, always have been of Italian cycling, Lombardy, Tuscany and the Veneto. And of course, Lombardy has Milano Sanremo and the Tour of Lombardy and Tuscany now has Strade Bianche. But um, these three regions have always produced a lot of pros and a lot of, well, they, they did used to host a lot of races, but the Veneto hasn't had a major race for quite a long time. And well, we were talking about it just before we recorded today. And I think, um, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the some of the factory visits, some of the companies you visited over the weekend. But the it has incredible heritage of bike manufacturers, bike accessory manufacturers, particularly saddles, shoes, um, and, and so forth. And that, and that has continued, although the industry itself has has suffered over the last 20 years because of, you know, a lot of manufacturing has been exported to the far east, but has continued to produce riders. And yeah, it was, it's overdue really that this region has a, a race worthy of that tradition and that heritage and that history. And uh, the Giro del Veneto, I'm sorry, the Veneto Classic on Sunday, it was a great race and, and a beautiful course as well. It reminded me, <laughs> in a way of the World Championship road race in the sense that it had these two kind of little circuits or two um, sort of um, high points in terms of the, the climbs, uh, the Tisa climb and the La Rosina. La Rosina itself is really famous in um, Veneto cycling, not not because it's featured a lot in the Giro or another race that has featured in the Giro, but because the restaurant at the top, uh, La Rosina, every year, I don't know if this tradition... Um, continue has continued rich maybe someone spoke to you about this at the weekend but all of the veneto professionals used to congregate there for a sort of a big meal um at the end of the season um and there used to be you know dozens and dozens of them there aren't quite that many now but it was a real sort of sacred place of cycling in the veneto yeah uh, you mentioned the the giro del veneto daniel i mean it's a, a long established event but hasn't been on the calendar since 2010 and has come back this year to be a part of this week of racing. The 2010 edition was won by Daniel Oss and Pozzato won it in 2009. So, um, you know, uh, I guess his home, home race at the time. But back then it was held at the end of August and it was one of the Italian one day races that the Italian World Championship selectors used to use as uh, to finalise or hone the World Championship team selection, wasn't it? And so it sort of had a, a, a secondary purpose. Whereas having these races in a mid-October slot, um, 
just from watching them on the TV. I mean, I'm looking at you, Richard, there. You've got the beautiful uh, blue sky, which matches your your shirt and sunglasses and the, the, the yellow-washed uh, brickwork of the building behind you. All coordinated, Lionel. And, Daniel, you're a keen observer of the light. I mean, the sort of mid-October light in northern Italy is, is absolutely stunning. I'm glad you noticed that, Napalm. I'm glad yeah, you noticed really, that. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. To, you know, it really transported me away from sort of drizzly, not Watford, uh, watching um, watching the, the the sun setting on the on the race season, but Richard, you mentioned uh, the future of this week of racing and and Pozzato's desire to have it a little bit earlier. I guess before the World Championship slot or around. He would like early September. Yeah, mm. I mean, it, it. I guess it depends on whether you know he wants to keep it as this week of of racing or just the the one event. And I, I mentioned that his heart was really with the, the Veneto Classic, the new race, his race, which is clearly um, the course is designed by him. There was a nod towards the, the Flemish Classics with the cobbled climb teaser, which was part of the Gran Fondo, as was La Rosina as well. We'll hear a bit from that later on, including the passing of the restaurant at the top, Daniel, because I recorded a bit of slow radio so we can hear about that. I rode up there with uh, Fabian Cancellara, uh, well, at least for as long as Cancellara could stay with me, um, but <laughs> oh <goodness>. the uh, <laughs> but the uh, no, I mean so your most famous scalp. <laughs> no, his his desire is definitely to have it in early September, and I heard that he was asking the UCI about you know how he could get World Tour status for that race as early as as next year. Um, I don't know how realistic that is, but. Um, no, it, it's, it's it, it, what was impressive, or what has been impressive this last week has been the um, the the desire there clearly has been to have these races in this region, as you say, Daniel. A lot of the cycling industry is is based here. The the races, the the weeks events had major support from Campagnolo, Villiers, Elite, um, CD. Uh, you know, they're just four of the the major cycling brands that are based here. We went visited all of them actually and uh, it, it, it's a fat you know that that's another aspect of the the cycling history and tradition here that the, the industry that's based here and it makes sense to have not just racing but but this place as a destination for riding as well which is part of Pozzato's ambition and part of the, these brands ambition to put this place on the map as a place to ride your bike as well I mean, it really should have a great opportunity and it's a really interesting time as well in terms of the bike industry because, um, you know, these are these are incredible brands with amazing history and heritage. I mean, I, I lived um, in Padova near there in the Veneto uh, 20 years ago. And, you know, one of the things that I'm still, I still get sort of nostalgic about when I look at, you know, what, what happens in the bike industry now is, you know, when you used to go out for a ride, in groups then you know everyone would have a different frame made by a different artisanal um you know frame builder and obviously the bike industry has completely it's veered away from that for reasons of practicality and costs um and in the last 10 or 15 years to greater or lesser extent the the italian bike manufacturing and accessory manufacturing um, sort of sector has has I think struggled in some cases not not in all cases but has sort of been racking its brains with how to how to kind of respond and, and maintain and consolidate and also sort of move forward 
But some of those brands you mentioned, Rich, it seems as though they, they have kind of emerged and they're in a position now with things like gravel and also, you know, e-bikes. They are in a position of strength to consolidate also on the appetite for things that are a little bit more artisanal, are a, a little bit more sort of recherche and, and do kind of tap into history, tradition, all those things that, that we all love about professional cycling. Well, I mean, we, we, I mentioned we went to all these factories. CD and, and Campagnolo were, were fascinating for the, the sense you had there of living history. You know, the, we'll hear more about this in the episode of Explore that I'm making from here. But at, at the CD factory, we met Signor Dino, uh, 86 years old, in the factory every morning at 6.30. He's the man that founded the company over 60 years ago. Um, at Campagnolo, we met Valentino Campagnolo, the son of Tullio Campagnolo, the, the founder of, of the company. And there's a real sense that, that, that they are true to the, the origins, the roots of the, the company. The ethos is still the same because the, the people involved are the, either the original founder or the family of the original founder. And the original founder looms very large over these companies. And yet, you know, in the case of, of Campagnolo and CD, innovation is obviously absolutely crucial for to survive because the cycling industry is changing so rapidly. And Campagnolo talking about, you know, a huge increase in revenue in the last couple of years, largely thanks to their new gravel group set, apparently. Um, so uh, there are kind of new opportunities emerging it would seem um, and that I think was partly why there was this first professional gravel race um, on last Friday which was won by Alexei Lutsenko we'd ridden the, the gravel course the day before, I would describe myself as a gravel sceptic um, in that I first time on a gravel bike, I, I'm a big fan of my mountain bike um, this was, and a few of the riders talked about this afterwards an unusual gravel race I guess they're all unusual because they're so new but there was bits of single track it was quite technical quite a lot of loose stones in places um, I felt parts of it would have been better on a mountain bike than a, a gravel bike uh, so I'm not sure I mean you mentioned Strada Bianca earlier Lionel there was, the rule in this race was that riders had to ride on gravel bikes and I think that will be one of the the principles of gravel racing um, and so there's there's definitely a, there'll be a huge drive from the industry to promote gravel racing and for pros to be on gravel bikes because it's a it's a new market that's just suddenly appeared in the last couple of years what constitutes a gravel bike strictly speaking is it it's a minimum tire width isn't it but what are the features? it's a good question the angles of the bike the mainly the the wheels and the tires of course um that, you know, there's more clearance for bigger, wider tyres, but the tyres aren't so wide that the ride is really comfortable and, I would say, safe on some quite on technical little trails, which the race did include the other day. So it was, it was strange. Um, we watched... Uh, it was a small field, 35-odd riders started, um, and, and a lot of them said afterwards that that was for the best, given the, the nature of the, the trails in places. But... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that a lot of the drive for this is coming from the, the cycling industry, which makes me also slightly sceptical of it. Well, this kind of happened with mountain biking, didn't it? At the start of the 90s, there was a big boom in people buying mountain bikes. And so uh, the, the sporting side of the industry uh, developed a 
you know, a, a world championships and a world cup, which for a while burned very brightly, didn't it? There, and, and there was an attempt to make the stars of mountain biking the equivalent of the stars of road cycling. And I think there is a, a sort of a, a fracture between participation and, um, you know, a desire to watch um, racing. I mean, we've got cyclocross, which is a, a you know, an, an hour effort. Um, we often talk about how it's the, the first sort of 10 minutes that sets the tone for the rest of the race. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a danger with gravel racing that it, that it's that kind of, spectacle but just over a longer period of time whereas the, the beauty of strada bianca or when the grand tours take the the races into more manageable off-road um, type challenges is that is that there's a sort of a an understandable um you know it, it all kind of links back to the, the the challenge of riding a road bike on you know just slightly rougher surfaces and maybe but yeah i don't know maybe Maybe it's just because where I do a lot of my cycling, I, I, you know, the road surfaces around me are not great. And so, you know, I, I dream of the opportunities to go and ride in Italy or the south of France yeah. or wherever the, the surfaces are like black gold. But don't get me wrong. It was it was uh, we riding the gravel bike was a lot of fun. The, the main difference is the speed. You can ride at speed and you can ride in a group on gravel and you get away from the cars and some of the driving around here left a little bit to be desired when you're out on your bike on your own. But the um, that was a lot of fun, very exhilarating. Um, I enjoyed riding on the gravel, but I just, I just wonder if professional gravel racing does take off. And I think, you know, there are rumours of, of teams and a lot of riders switching to gravel. You know, could we see in one of the Grand Tours in the future a, a proper gravel stage? It's been kind of tested at the Tour de France Fam next year. Uh, with the riders on gravel bikes, you know, they bring their time trial bikes for the time trials and their gravel bikes for the gravel stages. Who knows? It might it, happen. It, it will all it will all hinge on the ability of well, television networks to create a, a product that is appealing to an audience, isn't it? and it's you know practically it's a thing. It's poses considerable challenges and particularly on a course like the one you described this week, Rich, in La Serenissima, because on those. Those single track um, courses, sections of gravel, I don't know if it would even be possible, possibly with, um, you know, buggies. Um, but again, there are costs involved in all of this. And, you know, there are other issues as well with, you know, just dust and, 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 uh, and challenges you, you don't face if you're trying to, if you're trying to televise a a road race um so i think that that's tricky and and that's been one of the key reasons why mountain biking has well it sort of reached a bit of a glass ceiling didn't it Lionel? well it did didn't it i mean i suppose the the, the peak was in the late 90s and then uh well i think they found it harder and harder to find places that wanted to pay the money to host host the events and and the great irony now of course is that we've just had the um we've just had the olympic games with a mountain bike event where two of the the well a big star Matty van der Poel and an emerging star Tom Pidcock were the, the the big talking points and stories from that particular race so I think I don't know it's not I think there's always a danger of thinking that one is going to replace the other and I think Richard you're right there's a there's a, a place for it and it will be a, a sort of crossover thing rather than than a suddenly all um, you know clamoring for a gravel world tour Mm. Well, let's hear, shall we, from Taco van der Horn, the Antermarché rider, who certainly took it seriously and 
uh, flew in for the for the race. Um, and here's what he thought of it at the end. Yeah, it was uh, was okay. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So that uh, yeah, was nice. And uh, actually, was in the beginning was uh, a lot of gravel and uh, was quite difficult. And the last part was actually a lot of a lot of paved road and not really so much gravel. Uh, but it was still nice to do and uh, Lutsenko was too strong. But uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was fun doing, but it was, it was hard. <laughs> I guess you weren't able to recce any of it. You didn't kind of know where you were going or what yeah, you yeah. were going to I, experience. I knew everything. You did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Had, had you written it? Or? Yeah, I do, did the wreck on, on uh, Wednesday oh, already. Okay. Okay. I was here already, so I knew what, uh, what was going on. But we did quite easy in the beginning because it was still long. And uh, But in the end, it was fun. It was fun to do. and. Uh, yeah, it was something uh, was something different. Gravel racing is obviously an evolving an evolving thing. This, this the course here looked quite different to other gravel races I've seen. Have you ridden other gravel races as well? No, this was my first one, so that was also the reason I wanted to, to do it because I'm, I was curious about it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's different because uh, it's a lot of bike path, so it's for for with people like peloton like today with 30 guys or 40 guys then it's okay but you cannot ride with 20 on the 20 guys here because uh, then it's only about positioning and uh, so then it's going to be they, they have to go for bigger roads and uh, just if you have races like Port Epic or uh, the other Strade Bianca or the other gravel road races it's all wider roads and you can do that for just uh, only take that road for the whole course then it would be a nice gravel race for my opinion but Today it was too, but a peloton like this was nice, but uh, the course was too, too too narrow. And how was the bike? Because you had a, a special gravel bike today as well. Yeah, it was nice. Yes, I was really, uh, was really, uh, really nice to, to ride on it. And uh, I really did a bit too less pressure, I think, also in the tires, because it was nice for the first part with the corners and uh, the gravel. But afterwards, it was really a lot of paved road and. I was expecting it to go a bit harder in the beginning, so I didn't put so much in it. But on the paved road, it was a bit too soft. But uh, yeah, you, it's also the first race, so you have to learn about it a bit and uh, think about it. But, but it's nice to, uh, to have the gravel bike. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's something different. And uh, also for training or something, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it's developing very quickly and the UCI are bringing in a world championship. Is it something you'd like to do more of? Yeah, yeah, I would like, I would love to do it more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's, uh, if there is a possibility and it's, it's in my, it's possible to do it in my uh, schedule for the road, then I uh, would love to do some, uh, some, some of the races. And I think for me it would be better if the race is a little bit longer. For example, if you have 200, more like the more, more endurance. But uh, yeah, I would love, love to do it. Yeah. And nice to be back in Italy, scene of uh, your your greatest triumph this year, I think. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, lo I love to be here. So I also went directly after Puri Tour to to stay also at the, the last part of the season. Also, a bit enjoying Italy, a bit of the holiday because now the weather is it's much nicer here to 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 end the season and to, to do some training than uh, at home in uh, 10 degrees and rain. So uh, also because of doing next week still Drenthe. So it's nice to be here for one week also to, to keep the engine going and to, 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 to train this uh, environment and instead of Holland. Shoot, uh, shoot 
à l'arrière du peloton, Cycling Podcast Team Car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, interrupting our episode this week to remind us to tell you that it is sponsored by Calm. Calm is the number one mental wellness app, which has become part of my routine whenever I travel, which, of course, is what I've been doing this past week. And as lovely as it is to be in northern Italy in this beautiful autumn sunshine, I often struggle to sleep when I'm away from home. When I can't sleep, I listen now to Cam's sleep stories. I'm a particular fan of Eric Bra's tales of long train journeys. It's always great to see new ones added. I also listen sometimes to the soundscapes, usually of rain crashing against the window or waves crashing on the shore. I find these really effective at just slowing down my brain, helping me relax and ultimately to fall asleep. We're partnering with Cam, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. Clear your head with guided daily meditations, improve your focus with Cam's music tracks, and drift off to dreamland with Cam's imaginative sleep stories. And if you go to cam.com slash cycle, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Cam premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming, and new content is added every week. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. Go to calm.com slash cycle for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash cycle. Well, we heard before the, the break there from Taco van der Horn, the Antermarche rider. He did actually ride the Veneto Classic as well, but his team were not... Too, uh, well, they weren't as, as visible and active in that race um, as they had been actually in the, in the gravel race. Um, it was another disappointing race of Veneto Classic for UAE Team Emirates because last week in the Giro del Veneto, Mark Hershey had been away when he crashed um, in the Veneto Classic on Sunday. Um, it was uh, Matteo Trentin who was away with Samueli Battistella who would hold on to win the race but um, it was a very strange incident where Trentin crashed he, it was on the climb he got out of the saddle and I'm not sure if he touched the wheel of Battistella or not it was kind of hard to tell but he went down pretty hard and then he had a mechanical problem with his bike as well later on and he finished the race pretty angry um, it was a great win by Battistella wasn't it and completed a really good week for Astana but um, UAE Team Emirates uh, pretty pretty raw I think Hershey did manage to finish on the podium he was second Jonathan Restrepo of Androni Giacattoli was third a, a rider who Colombian rider who used to be at Katusha and was a great considered a great prospect so that was a, a good result and performance by him but yeah, um, UAE Team Emirates left empty-handed at the end of this week of racing. Well, it's a funny race. They were the, they were clearly the strongest team in terms of personnel in the uh, Veneto races, um, the Veneto Classic and the Giro del Veneto. And the night before the Veneto Classics on Saturday night, I know Ciro was exchanging messages with Beppe Martinelli, the Astana director sportif, and um, Martinelli had said to Ciro that, well, UAE were too strong, so he was going to have to come up with something, a bit of a ruse, some sort of, some sort of master plan to defeat them. And that was going to be basically luring them into thinking that Astana were riding for Lutsenko. And he said to Ciro, I'm going to unleash Battistella tomorrow. 
And well, um, he did. Yes, and they're wow, incredible, incredible clear. A promising young rider. He he he's the world under twenty three champion, wasn't he in Harrogate? Controversially, a couple of years ago. Controversially, Controversially yeah. when Niels Eckhoff was disqualified. Indeed. Um, Another team, another World Tour team that were in action there were Cofidis. And somebody who came in just for the Veneto Classic um, was Guillaume Martin after his starring role in the Tour de France presentation midweek. Um, he looked particularly dashing in his, his suit, his open neck shirt, coat and scarf slung over his arm. Um, uh, he, he looked very bookish in his glass little spectacles, but he wanted to carry on racing and came out here um, to ride this final race of the year. And he was very active. He was finished eighth in the end. Daniel, you pointed out that he gave an interview last week where he said that he had not abandoned the race well, since February 2018. Yeah, well, this has been noted by a few people recently and, um, yeah, he was asked about it. But the, the list, Rich, before we hear from him, is well, it's extraordinary. The, the, so this league table of riders who were the longest period since their last DNF. And he is in front by over 100 race days. So Guillaume Martin, 310 race days since his last DNF. The next rider is Esteban Chavez, who's at 209. We had a conversation about this at the start of the year, didn't we? We were going to, we talked about some kind of 100 club creating or founding some kind of 100 club, 100 plus race days with no... DNFs and there are about well, there's 17 of them. So Pro Cycling Stats um, has down men and women. Um, Sep Cusses on there, Amy Peters, Peo Bill, Bill Bow. Well, Marta is in the. What color of jersey would you would you wear for that? For never DNFing. I mean, what what is there a color that would be appropriate? <laughs> I'm not sure that there is. Pretty. One torn and ripped yeah. and decaying. Um, yeah, you've got to wear the yeah. same jersey for every, <laughs> every single day you don't DNF. So. Brilliant. Well, here's what he, he obviously enjoyed his day out at Veneto, so here's what he said at the finish. That was an entertaining race to watch. What was it like to ride? <laughs> Not so funny, to be honest. That was a really long race to finish uh, the season and a really hard one also uh, with uh, that uh, final lapse. Uh, were really always up and down. Uh, I did with uh, what I had left in the in the legs after the whole season. It was a really tough season, so I'm happy to, to be there again uh, in the mix uh, for the last one. And now I can go on holidays uh, happy. But you're here by choice, I guess. You wanted to, to ride this race. Why did you want to race so late in the in the year? Uh, I think I'm a bit uh, an addict of uh, racing, so. And also, uh, there is a race for points, I think. Uh, everybody doesn't uh, know it, but uh, for, for the teams, it's uh, really important to uh, not only to win races, but also uh, to uh, finish, I don't know, five and six to get some points. And that's why also we have to race uh, till the end of the season and uh, from the beginning of the season also. Um, but uh, I also, it's a... Uh, Nice way to, to conclude the season, uh, nice weather, nice uh, landscapes, and I'm really happy to discover this, uh, this race. You had, uh, you had to finish because you gave an interview this week where you said you've finished every race you've done since February 2018, I think about 300 race days in a row. Is that something that you've committed to consciously that's important to you? Um, no, my, my goal is not to, uh, not to abandon, it's uh, to do the best uh, results uh, possible. And I start every race 
uh, really with a fighting spirit and I think that's why I uh, never give up so um, I think that's the main uh, explanation and uh, the last time I think it was in Italy in the Gran Premio Legueria in uh, early February 2018 and now I'm still in Italy uh, three more than three years later and uh, no no abundance so I, I'm also proud of it because well, it uh, tells something about the kind of rider I am. It must be strange to go to the tour presentation for next year and then race again but what did you make of the tour route for next year? Uh, yeah it was a, a strange week for me because I, on Monday I was in Italy for Agostoni and then I went back to France uh, to see the presentation. Uh, I like the route to be honest uh, not particularly the first uh, stages that are really uh, tricky and uh, windy and flat but uh, starting uh, from the fifth or sixth uh, stage it's always uh, almost a uh, mountain so this part I, uh, I like here. Yeah. And what did you finally think about today in terms of what kind of race was it? Is it the, does it remind you of any other race or something completely different? You had the cobbled climb in there as well. Yeah I think it's a, a mix of uh, every kind of race with a uh, style of uh, Flemish classic and then uh, flat at the beginning uh, super hilly at the end so punchy with the last uh, climb so yeah you really have to to be good, good in uh, every part of cycling also downhills uh, to be to be good on uh, that race and I think at the end on the first group you only had uh, stronger strong guys the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science thank you very much to science in sport for fueling my ride I'm around an hour and a quarter from home at the moment and I've just stopped to have a little energy break and I am going to have one of the Science in Sport Go Isotonic Energy Gels. Now these are an absolute staple of the energy foods. I always put one of these in my pocket when I'm going for a ride, even if I'm only going for an hour. I'll have one halfway round just because it's going to keep those feelings of hunger at bay. And if I'm going hard, I'll have one every half an hour or so. They've got 22 grams of carbohydrate in each gel and they're not overly calorific. They're 87 calories per 60 milliliter gel sachet. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the flavour. So this is pink grapefruit I've gone for today. So let's have a taste. Well, that is light, it's fruity, it's citrusy, it's sweet, but not at all sickly. It's a burst of Florida sunshine. It's a non-alcoholic cocktail on a roof terrace. It's very easy to eat and it's packed with all the energy you need to fuel your ride. So I'm going to fold up the used wrapper and pop it in one of my jersey pockets and take it home with me and I'm going to get on with my ride. And if you would like 25% off all Science in Sport products at scienceinsport.com, you know the code by now. It's SISCP25. Well, thanks very much to Science and Sport for their support of the cycling podcast. And that was the first of your taste tests, Lionel. Indeed it was. More of those to come over the coming weeks. Excellent, excellent. A reminder, if you want 25% off your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25. I wolfed down a couple of uh, blueberry energy bars um, on Saturday. Uh, Science and Sport energy bars, of course. I'm always on brand. Um, while doing the Gran Fondo, the Veneto Go, as it was called, um, was this sure. before or after you dropped Fabian Cancellara? Well, it was during the Grand Fondo that I dropped him, uh, Lionel. Yeah, but did you take uh, the hope gels? He, hope he's not listening Take the gels to this. and then drop him? 
I, I think it's fair to say that 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 Cancellara was was starting to struggle a little bit on the on the climb of La Rosina. It is it is a tough climb. It's got hairpins. It's like a mini Alpe d'Huez, really, very mini. Um, but it was. Uh, it was a very enjoyable ride. Um, I, I've never ridden a given that. Sorry, Daniel. Given that, given that Cancellara has put his name to a series of events, kind of. I don't exactly know the format, but they are called chasing Cancellara. Well, yeah, chasing Cancellara. Uh, will you socks. now be? Will we now get the chasing Buffalo Moor series? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, by I, invitation. I was only. only chasing him for so long up that climb. I can tell you. Um, and then but, you drop. You're putting on your it, stopped at the side of the road to put on your dropping. Cancellara. Yeah, yeah. Socks, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to over overplay this, but it was my first Grand Fondo experience. Uh, I would obviously, but it was my first Grand Fondo experience, and it was unlike any other sportif I've done. Now, you mentioned Daniel that this is quite quite common, I think, but it was basically a race. I mean, Pozzato said he didn't want it to be a race; he wanted it to be fun and not about finishing in the fastest time. There was a refreshment stop um, around seventy kilometres in. It was one hundred twelve kilometres in total. And it was a race from the from the start. You know, it was not there was no kind of you know no riding two abreast. It was very much a peloton, and it was it was a lot of fun to be in. It was it was fast, but not too fast. Um, Cancellara and Ivan Basso were leading my group, and um, yeah, it, lots of very fit riders, lots of very expensive bikes around me. Um, but I, I had a lot of fun, and we'll hear more about that in the episode of Explore. Something I did do as we climbed La Rosina was I, I recorded um, the, the, the climb um, for Slow Radio. And so you, let's hear a bit of that now, shall we? Um, me climbing La Rosina. You can hear, the voice you can hear is Fabian Cancellara because he, he talked pretty much all the way up, which is maybe partly why he, he ran out of puff <laughs> towards the end. Um, but let's hear a bit from La Rosina. I hope that transported you there, uh, chaps. Did it into my back pocket oh, as we as we claim La Rosina. Um, that, it, well, there was a bit of a bit of material sound there. Um, we have had a couple of submissions for Slow Radio recently. Keep them coming. We will be uh, resurrecting that over the, over the winter. 
Um, a couple of good ones have come in though, so I'm looking forward to featuring those. Um, on Sunday who's, at the, sorry Daniel. Who's the most famous person you've dropped, Lionel? Oh, this is a setup. Um, I don't. Think I, even, I don't think I even dropped um, Laura and Emma Trot when they were racing in a third cat race at Hillingdon. I think they they they, they were, were ahead old. of me. Laura Trot was nine at the time. <laughs> she was a bit older than that. She wouldn't have been allowed to race in a third cat race until you know got to a junior age. So. Daniel, have you dropped anyone oh, famous? <laughs> funny, funny you should mention that, Rich, because, um, yeah, there was one, one illustrious victim, um, Frank Vandenbrucker, the late Frank Vandenbrucker in um, 2001. It was about my second assignment for Pro Cycling Magazine. I was dispatched to their training camp in Tuscany, Castagneto Carducci, and they invited me to ride with the team. Got fully kitted out in lamprey gear, and we went out... Um, in, you know, Gilberto Simone, who else was there? I think Max Chantry might have been riding for them that year. Anyway, off we went, and Vandenbroek was coming off two very difficult years. I think this was the start of his problems, you know, possibly even his addiction problems that um, later very sadly led to his demise. But um, he was at the training camp, but not in a very good place, I don't think. And at one point, he decided that I think that he was going to go back to the hotel. He wasn't going to finish the training ride. And we had a, I had a very enthusiastic, very charming, but slightly overzealous photographer, Nigel Farrow, um, his name is, was on that trip. And I think it was his first trip to, to certainly to a cycling team training camp. And anyway, Nigel pulled alongside the whole pace line in the car and shouted out the window, Daniel, you've dropped Vandenbroeker. Keep going. You've dropped him. <laughs> quite. Oh, dear. Thinking that this he must, was quite a he, serious he, accomplishment. Well, he um, must have been yeah. like a bag of washing at the time. <laughs> there you go. There I you mean, go. not far off his, his pomp as well, but well done, Daniel. I have to say there was a, a disappointing lack of retro Italian jerseys on display no Lamprey, no Mappe no Androni jerseys on display in the Grand Fondo, they're all wearing the latest um, you know, the latest clothing non-team issue it's disappointing. but speaking of Androni I did speak to Gianni Savio um, whose rider, Jonathan Restrepo was third in the Veneto Classic um, he's got a new sponsor for next year, so his team carries on it was an important result for them as well this um so here's uh, gianni savio from the finish of the veneto classic uh, my english is very oh, bad it's very eh? good it's okay. very good you always say that but it's very good a good a good ride today by jonathan he he yes. seems to have done well on your team yes uh, today he, he made a very good race because uh, he was uh, with the first uh, uh, he attack and uh, after he have the energy to make the sprint and uh, he, he was the third podium for us is very good and with these results we are also podium in the Italian championship for team eh? because he is the first UAE Second uh, and uh, I think a third uh, uh, track, I think. So, so that's very us, important. Yes, for us is very important. It's a very good result. Uh, and what did you I am happy. You're happy. What did you think of this race? Uh, very good. Uh, I, I uh, made compliments to Filippo Pozzato. 
because uh, a very good race and uh, a very well organization because uh, I think that uh, this is uh, very important a new race uh, in Italy but a new big race so many compliments to Pippo Pozzato and to his uh, organizer. And you have a new sponsor for next year. Are your yes. plans all in place for next year? Yes, yes. We have a new sponsor, but uh, also Androni will continue with us. The new name will be will be um, Drone Oper Androni Giocattoli. And when will we see your kit? When will we see your, your jersey for next year? Uh, we are studying this. We are studying this. Uh, I think that in uh, two weeks uh, we will have... Because uh, people love your jersey and, uh, with all the, all the names on. Well, you have lots of names again next year. Less, uh, less, uh, less. Uh, so, uh, with, the, with, the, with the sponsor, most important. Uh, but all... Always we must have uh, a few of uh, sponsors because uh, we have no the big, big uh, <laughs> sponsorship. And for this reason, uh, we have uh, from... Lots of smaller sponsors. Yes. Yeah. As good to hear from Gianni Rich. Um, as he you said say, to say hi, Daniel. Did he? Uh, yeah. I'll give him a call this week. Um, uh, they have finished on the podium again of the Coppa Italia. Less important this year because we know in the past they have they have obtained a Giro wild card by virtue of, of winning the Coppa Italia. I don't think they'll have too many problems getting into the Giro next year because, well, the it's been widely reported, I think, over the last few days that Vini Zabu. Um, the Italian Pro Conti team are in trouble and are likely to, to shut down. I've spoken to people on the team this morning and they've confirmed that it's 99% certain that that team will close, which is, is pretty sad. Well, you'll remember probably that in the spring, one of their riders, Matteo De Bonis, tested positive and this led to raids on well, a number of individuals' homes, including Luca Shinto and Angelo Citraca, the, the sort of head honchos of that team. And yeah, it's going to close. It's been a team that's well, it's been around for a number of years in different iterations, but it's... Well, against the the backdrop, we said of, uh, we talked about Italian cycling and the Italian cycling industry sort of rediscovering some of its old mojo or possibly doing that over the next few years. The the professional scene is still quite troubled, and I don't think any of the riders, one of the riders, I think Vini Zabu, uh, Simone Bevilacqua, has got a contract for next year, but otherwise they are all unemployed and I, I think chaps over the next few weeks just looking at some world tour rosters there are quite a lot of teams that haven't finalized their rosters and we will be in the very familiar position over the next few weeks of talking about guys who are contemplating probably a premature the premature end of their career um, because there are, there are quite a lot who don't have arrangements for next year it's funny on that, chaps. I was talking to some agents at the Worlds a couple of weeks ago, uh, Rich, and you know, talking about the sort of movements in the market this year and some of the the wider phenomena. And one thing that has come up a few times in the last few months has been 
teams being afraid of the, the kind of opportunity cost of keeping these sort of mid-age, so, you know, between 27 to 32-year-old maybe stalwarts who don't necessarily get great results, but they've been sort of solid servants to teams for a long time. And a lot of teams, I think, have had their heads turned over the last three or four years by, well, a couple of things, the emergence of these super talents, these very young super talents who, you know, you can sign up on their first pro deal for not very much money. And they might just, you know, it is like buying a lottery ticket. You might just hit the jackpot. And then, you know, there are other sort of talent pools that are being exploited, and like South America, for example. I think that, you know, the Colombians haven't had quite such a good season this year but there as well there are a lot of you know there are a lot of guys who who appear to or could possibly have the potential to to thrive in Europe and they're not necessarily the most expensive riders particularly when it is their first experience of pro tour racing or pro conti racing and you know often it's the as I say those solid sort of stalwart workhorses that are being forced out I mean I think of a team like EF Education First who have announced a couple of signings in the last few days or in, in the last couple of weeks. They've had a, a busy period in the market. And you've got guys like Will Barter, the American, Lawson Craddock, neither of neither of whom at the moment um, certainly have had their contracts renewed. And I don't think that they have signed anywhere at the moment. But I see, I see it as being a, a difficult sort of winter for, for some riders of that ilk. And yet those guys are, are needed. I mean, Lawson Craddock... What a, what a brilliant job he did for Magnus Court at the at the Vuelta. Um, maybe maybe went you know a long way to helping him win that that stage when those two were away in a break. I mean, and I think automatically somehow somebody like Salvatore Puccio, you know, who within that team at Ineos Grenadiers would describe him often as the most valuable member of the team. Um, I spoke to an agent as well a few weeks ago who said that in particular riders um, in their in their young mid-twenties are struggling to get a second contract because teams are looking ever um, at ever younger riders and they're obviously looking for stars but they also need the workhorses, don't they? They need, they need the guys like the Puccios and the Craddocks who can do a, a great job for the team when required. But I think some of it undeniably is also due to the, well, the, the accessibility of information firstly and also well, live coverage or, or highlights of races. There are so many races now that team managers can can watch and they can have their heads turned. They can think they've spotted the next, I don't know, whatever, Tade Pogacar. And whereas previously, scouting and information gathering, intel gathering as far as recruitment was concerned, was conducted much more on a word of mouth basis and... You know, you did sort of double down on those guys who you knew, you know, had three or four or five years experience of just doing a job. Okay, they weren't spectacular, but you didn't necessarily want to take the risk of of signing someone you'd never seen in a race before or, um, you know, you you were only going on the basis of of a few results in under 23 races now team managers have all the physiological data they have the results they can you know very easily access those but you know more importantly as well they can they can watch them in action well listen chaps i should uh, go and enjoy my last couple of hours of of beautiful autumn sunshine here in bassano del grappa 
Daniel, when we were here, we stayed in the B&B Hemingway, didn't we? Next door to the Hemingway Museum. Sadly, it's closed today. I I'm glad that I did manage to visit it um, early that Sunday morning because it's closed on a, on a Monday. It's well worth a visit if anybody is in the area. F. Scott Fitzgerald also lived here briefly during World War One. I. I rode to Azalo yesterday um, where uh, Robert Browning, the English poet, once lived. Um, and in fact... The house in which he lived was bought a few years ago by the family, is it Massimo Zanetti, the, the Segafredo boss. So there's a cycling link there. It's now a hotel in Azolo and uh, it's the old Robert, Robert Browning house now owned by the Zanetti family. Also, Rich, famous for an association with another Azolo, with another... Um, Bacala. No, with another writer, um, English writer, Freya Stark. You heard of her? Quite a famous travel writer. Mm. But I think spent most of her life in Azaloy, if I remember correctly. Well, Mr. Bacala, the, uh, the, the man who uh, puts a lot of money into De Kooning Quick Quickstep, also has a house there, Filippo Pozzato told me. It feels like a, a wealthy place. Bassano del Grappa as well feels like a quite a wealthy place. Is that a correct impression? The whole region, um, I mean, it's had its difficulties in the last few years because of, you know, its wealth was built on manufacturing after the Second World War and it's sort of conceded or ceded a lot of a lot of wealth to, to the Far East over the last 20, 30 years. But, um, yeah, slightly resurgent, I would say. Mm. Oh, it's lovely. Um, I'll, I'll take a stroll down the Brenta River and uh, enjoy, as I say, the last uh, couple of hours of, of lovely sunshine here. Um, it's beautiful. Recommend a, a visit to this part of the world in autumn if you get a chance. Just before we go, Rich, you may remember we ran a competition to win a set of Jaybird Vista Sport earphones, and it was a rollover, wasn't it, because nobody predicted the winner of the World Championships, so we rolled it over to Men's Paris Bay, and we have a winner, Kay Naldrip. Congratulations, you predicted that Sonny Cobrelli would win Paris-Roubaix and your earphones are on their way to you. Hopefully you've received them by now, but congratulations. I saw um, a, a new pair of shoes being made for Sonny Cobrelli in the CD factory the other day. Um, sewing machine operator, uh, you know, hand-making these shoes. It was absolutely fascinating to watch. Um, so, Sonny Cobrelli, if you're listening, your new shoes should be ready pretty soon. Uh, that's all for this week I think we'll be back next week I think we've got an episode of Service Course coming out later this week as well we've got some episodes of Explore to come too and the final episode of Life in the Peloton for this season Mitch Docker contemplating retirement that will be out on Wednesday we, our latest friend special was my um, episode from Flanders got a, a message the other day from somebody who had Having heard it, uh, gone on their own little tour of Flanders and stayed in the Flandrian Hotel. Um, so that was nice to hear. Um, and there are more Friends specials coming very soon as well. You can sign up as a friend at thecyclingpodcast.com. But until next week, that's all from us. Thank you very much, Lionel. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear. And this episode was produced by Hugh Owen.